Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. So good to be with you, good to be with those that are online, and we're going to be continuing in this, this season that we're in, not just the series, called Coming Home. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up, you can turn them on, do whatever you're needing to do to get into Luke chapter 15. And we're going to be spending some time just looking at the last few verses of the story of the prodigal son. And uh, we've really kicked off this series, and we're focusing on Jesus' words, where just before he's ascending, he says to the disciples, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who's going to walk alongside, the advocate. And then he continues to say this, and I will not leave you as orphans. And there's something particular in that statement that I'm trusting that as we investigate it, will just be exposed and revealed to us about what it means not to be spiritual orphans left off on our own, but to know that we're sons and daughters that have identity and intimacy that we get to live from, and we have an inheritance that we know that we have a, not just that we have a heavenly father, but that we have a good, good father and that he loves us and that he is for us. And so we're wanting to spend some time looking at these things. And it's not to condemn and to come and say, look, you've got an orphan heart or an orphan spirit or orphan mentality. It's not to do that. But rather it's to realize that we don't have to act or behave in certain patterns or ways that we have thought we needed to, to get the father's favor but we know that we can have the spiritual approach that we get to live from this place of what it means to be a son and a daughter. And so last week we looked at the son who wanted, and we're looking at the prodigal son, and we know that he wanted because he felt there was lack in his father's house, and so he headed off for a distant place, and it says his want led him away, which led him to waste. But then he came to his senses, and he returned home. And uh, we often focus on the prodigal son, We often look at him and the mistakes he made, and we forget that there's another son at home who also has issues and who also has challenges, who also has an orphan heart that manifests at times and in moments. And so we look at the prodigal son who left because he felt he didn't need the father, but there's another son who stayed who didn't even know that he had a father. The scriptures say that he would go out and he would work in the fields like a slave, and he was behaving in a way that he didn't have a father, but he had a master. This is the challenge that's happening when we look at him. And so we looked at the first part of the story, and now we're going to look at the second part of the story. If you've got your Bibles open, it's verse 25. And it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in his field working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, What's going on? And they responded, Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're going to hear about the fattened calf a little bit more later. And we are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. So his father had to come out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, I like that, not my brother, but when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, 
You have always stayed by me, uh, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead, and he has now come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so this is the passage that we're just going to delve into just a little bit more. We've seen the son who, who wanted, and now we're seeing the son who worked. And both are displaying this orphan-hearted tendency that seems to come out at different moments. And you know, a lot of us can relate best to the son who worked, because maybe we haven't lived that rebellious, licentious, wild living, um, out all night sort of life. And maybe you feel, no, identify more with the older son. I mean, I'm the younger son in my family, but I identify more with the older son. My brother John is the wild, rebellious one who's not at church this morning. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. John, if you're watching, it's one point to me. Um, but there, there's this sense that we can relate more to this older son. He stayed and worked. He did what he was supposed to do. Without him, there would have been no harvest. I mean, he was working in the fields while the other son was off squandering the inheritance. And you know, in the church setting, we can be in that place and we love our Christianese where we can just say, well, you know, he was just building his testimony. You know, he was in a mess, but he was going to make it into a message. And we love that and it sounds great. But truthfully, in our hearts, it doesn't always feel so fair. It doesn't always feel fair to us. And in church, as I've mentioned, we can be quick to celebrate the prodigals who come home. You know, we love to hear one of those stories where someone has come out of addiction to drugs and out of um, illicit affairs and out of embezzling and greed, and they've discovered God, and we love those stories, and we should, because they're beautiful. They show the redemptive power of God at work in everyone's life, no matter what condition you're in, and we love that. But how often do we take time to call up, I'm going to call him Roger, who's been married for 55 years, 20,075 days, who's been faithful for each of those, who's raised two godly kids, who's been faithful in serving the body of Christ sacrificially, who is dedication personified. How often do we celebrate the person like John? I mean, Roger. And we do celebrate you, John. And we do in this house, as we started off with. And Rich never knew what I was going to share on. But you know, this is what the older son might have been wrestling with. He might have been in this place, but he's, what about me, you know? I've been here the whole time. Why am I not celebrated? Why am I the one that's not good enough to get the fattened calf? And sometimes that can be our thoughts, and, and this will trap us up, and this will hold us back from all the riches and the, the wonder of what God has for us. And that's why we need to address these uh, thoughts and these misconceptions and these mindsets, because we want to live free of that. And as I say, we can identify with this older son because maybe we identify, we live in um, Schlanger area, Durban North area, and we've got the corporate ridge with all the businesses. Maybe you work in one of those. And maybe we identify with this work ethic. You know, we value hard work and we can respect that. We can't respect if you're apathetic and not doing, every, doing anything. And so really, when we look at it that way, this older son's behavior doesn't seem so unfounded. You know, I can understand it. But I want to caution us to this reality. If we look at the son who runs away and his orphan heart manifested in a rebellious spirit, then I want to say if we look at the son who stayed home, his orphan heart manifested in a religious spirit. And both are equally dangerous. And both are not welcome in the fullness of what God has for your life and mine. So Romans 8.14, Paul ties this point together of the religious spirit and the orphan heart versus that of being a son. Verse 14, 
The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And here it is. And you did not receive, watch this wording, and you did not receive the spirit of religious duty. You did not receive that. That leads you back into the fear of never being good good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance. It means full adoption if you look at other translations. Conveying this thought that you're a son. The spirit of full acceptance that enfolds you into the family of God. And you will never feel orphaned. For as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection. Beloved father. For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, you are God's beloved child. And you see how Paul makes this connection here. He ties these two things together. God has not given you a spirit of religion because the spirit of religion produces an orphan heart. And if you've got an orphan heart, then you feel you've got to perform and you've got to do and you've got to strive and you've got to earn your right to be loved. God's not saying that. He's saying, no, I'm I'm giving you, I've been fully accepted. You have been adopted. You have been brought in. You've been enfolded into my heart. You are my beloved son and I am your father and I'm going to whisper into your heart my love for you at any given moment and every opportunity. See, there's something different we see there. And so you, this, this religious spirit causes this orphan-heartedness to work at us. And so I want to try and expose that. And so I'm going to use a phrase, um, and I'm going to bring five points. I'm going to use this phrase before it to try and just jolt us into this realization. And uh, my wife's from the U.S., and so I'm going to use a little bit of American humor. I don't know if you've heard of um, the comedian Jeff Foxworthy. He came up with the you could be a redneck jokes. We're in South Africa. We're not going to use the Fundamerva or any other jokes. We're going to use the you could be a redneck joke. Are you with me? don't know if you're watching from the States. I apologize uh, if you are online. But here's one of them, if you haven't heard them. If your wife's hairdo has ever been ruined by a ceiling fan, you could be a redneck. <laughs> if your idea of quality entertainment is a six-pack of beer and a bug zapper, you might be a redneck. I've got to confess, I've got a bug zapper. That thing is awesome. I love to sit on the patio, have a couple beers and use it. No, I'm joking. That's not what I do. I actually had two more, but I got banned in the first service from saying them, so I apologize. Um, I can't tell my jokes. But um, So we're going to look at these five points, and we're going to put this phrase before it, and that's the heart and the attitude. I'm not doing it to condemn, but just to kind of provoke um, lightheartedly but sincerely and robustly this realization of what heart are we living out of. So the first one is this. You might have an orphan heart. That's the phrase I'm going to use. You might have an orphan heart if you harbor resentment. I mean, I'm going straight for the jugular. You see, there was a son who stayed home and he resented not only his brother, but he resented his father's behavior as well. Resentment started to breed in his life. And this is a word, when we look at it, that we don't speak about too much in church. We rather use words like bitterness or unforgiveness. But I want to, I love the honesty and the brutality of this word resentment, because you can just pick up that there's, there's danger all around it. When you look in the dictionary, it speaks about bitter indignation. When there's resentment, bitter indignation. It uses a phrase to help you see the word in usage, and it's, and it's this, they harbored resentment. So I want to ask you the question, and then I'll help you discover if you are. Are you harboring resentment? Are you harboring resentment in your life? You know, a harbor is a place where a boat comes into to find shelter and to hide away from what's on the outside. 
And in the same way, we often do the same with our pain, with our indignation, with our bitterness, with our unforgiveness. We harbor it. We bring it in from the outside and we say, you'll be okay here. I'm going to keep you right in this place. And so we land up harboring resentment. Here's the dictionary definition. Resentment is a feeling of anger or displeasure stemming from a belief that one has been wronged by others. You might have resentment and harbor it and not even know it, but be suffering the effects of it if this is true of you. It's a feeling of anger or displeasure that stems from a belief that someone has been wronged by others. Has someone wronged you? You see, resentment is when, I can simplify it like this. Let me put it in language that uh, would help you understand stand a little bit uh, easier. Resentment is when I work really hard to achieve something and I don't get it, you get it then I resent you. I work really hard to achieve it. I don't get it. You get it. Then I'm going to resent you. You see, you didn't do anything. You didn't deserve it. You shouldn't have had it. I should have had it. So I resent you. That's resentment and how it starts to work. And if I have this value system, maybe I've been working in a company and I think, you know, I've been here for 10 years and I've always been punctual. I've been on time and I've done everything they've asked for me and I've listened to every instruction and every rule. So I deserve the promotion, but you just got here and you have done none of those things and you've got promoted and I didn't. So I resent you. This is how it starts to work. Maybe it's in your generosity and your giving and you are practicing tithing and you've got some, um, preconceived ideas of what that means. Maybe you think that means I'm going to have no debt, or maybe you think it means I'm going to be given a house or a home or one of those things. And then you see someone else who's not living a godly life, and they're not practicing tithing, and they've just bought a yacht. I mean, how does that happen? I resent you. I don't really. I want to come on your yacht with you, but I'm painting that as an example. And if we're not careful, resentment starts to build in our lives towards others. We see it throughout the Bible. You look at Cain. Cain resented Abel. There was resentment in his heart. You see, Abel brought first fruits. Cain just brought some fruits. And so God honored Abel's heart that he brought the first. He was saying, God, I'm demonstrating that I believe that you're my provider. And because of that, God favored him and he flourished. And Cain just thought, you know, I'm going to get my own provision and I'm just going to give God, you get a little portion of what I've provided. And so he didn't. And so he resented Abel because of that. We can look at Joseph. Joseph had the coat of many colors. And it says the father loved him, so he gave him the special coat. But all the brothers resented him because they thought, we deserve that. So they resented him. In the book of Acts, you see the apostle Paul. And he has this aspect of resenting John Mark. And it causes this bitter disagreement with Barnabas. They have this sharp, bitter, heated debate. They go separate ways, it says. And the reason being is that John Mark, they had hit one missionary trip that seemed a little bit hard, and John Mark was out. And so Paul resented him for bailing on them. And the next moment, the next trip comes, and Barnabas is like, hey, let's bring John Mark. And Paul is like, nah, it's not going to happen, not on my watch. And so resentment is real. And I don't know who you resent, but I wager that you resent someone or something. And you might be thinking, no, I'm just polishing my halo sitting in church this morning. There's no resentment in our heart. But maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a company. How are you feeling about ESCOM? (laughs) Maybe it's a political party. We've got elections coming up this week. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's an ex-wife or an ex-husband. Maybe it's a European rugby referee. Have you been enjoying the championship? I don't know who it is and 
what person or what place or what thing or what object or what item that is provoking that response of resentment that's fortifying itself in our lives, but we can be allowing that to be built in us, these strongholds to be built in us. And so I want to encourage you with what 1 Corinthians 13 says, this chapter on love. And when we realize that love is increasing, when we are growing in love, when we are maturing in love, when we are becoming effervescent and overflowing with love, it's impossible to have resentment advancing in your life as well. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13, 45. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It is not irritable or resentful, saying it can't be. This can't happen. If there's love at work in your heart, and if it's advancing, and if it's growing, and if it's increasing, then resentment has to be decreasing. It has to be being removed, because they cannot exist in the same place. And you might say, but hey, hang on a moment. What's the big deal? You know, what's what's the, the challenge here if I really don't like someone? Well, I want to show you what the danger is. I want to show you what the big deal is about this. And it's this reality that every time that we allow resentment towards someone to build in our hearts, it's going to cause a reaction. There's a reaction that takes place. We, get, we just think, oh no, it's resentment, it's fine, but we don't realize that it's catalytic and that it's explosive and that the way that explodes is dangerous because you cannot have, a, have that happening within you without something taking place without and we want to make sure that we arrest that thing before we land up on News 24 or arrest it ourselves and heading off to prison for ways that we behave. Luke 15 verse 28 says this, The oldest son became angry and he refused to go in and celebrate. So here's the thing. His resentment led to refusal. His reaction was to refuse. His resentment led to refusal. And so we see that when we have this value system at work in our heart, it starts to determine how we engage or disengage. And whether you know it or not, we all have value systems. Whether you're intentional about them or unintentional, there are value systems. And when someone crosses your value system, you refuse. I mean, we've just seen that in South African cricket, when someone's value system was stepped over and there was a refusal. And there we saw Cricket South Africa's response and their value system was stepped over and there was a refusal. I mean, this is the reaction. This is what happens. And maybe it's uh, the same with you. Maybe you've got a value for punctuality and someone's always late to meet with you and they're never on time, never on time. Eventually, you're going to put up a wall. You can call it a boundary. You're going to put up a wall or a boundary and you're not going to continue to engage with that person. You're going to refuse any more interaction because their behavior has basically disregarded your values. And so you put up a wall, and you disengage, and you refuse any further interaction. This is what's happening here. The older son, he had a value for hard work, and the younger son was squandering and wasting, and so he said, I refuse. I'm putting up my wall. I'm disengaging. I refuse to be part of this celebration. Father, I don't mind that you are hosting it or that you are throw, throwing it. My value system will not allow me to be a part of this, and so I want to encourage you. You need to reassess, reestablish, be intentional about determining what your value system is. Don't let it be determined for you, and we see this with Jesus. We see that when Jesus is ministering and he's doing miracles and people are hanging on every word he says because there's wisdom and truth and grace and revelation not over this, uh, from this world but straight from heaven. And one of the person listening some, suddenly recognizes, isn't this Jesus from the block? 
He used to play in the sandpit, and we used to kick a soccer ball around. And he used to love carrying wood around with him, whittling it at every opportunity. Sorry, when I said that, I didn't mean it. I just thought of the cross. Whittling it at every opportunity. And so their thought is, what makes him so special? Matthew 13, verse 57, it says this. And they were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. They put in a wall that would stop them from engaging with all the wisdom, with all the grace, with all the truth, with all the miracles that were happening because something of their value system said he's not so special. So the wall came up, they disengaged with Jesus and they wouldn't have anything further to do with him. They refused to believe. So your resentfulness will cause you to build up a wall of refusal towards someone or something. That's what resentment does in our lives. Here's the danger. Cain's resentment towards Abel led to the reaction of him killing his brother. Joseph's brother's resentment towards him led to the reaction that they sold him into slavery. Think about Judas. uh, Judas, I believe, resented Jesus because Jesus was so generous. So Judas resented Jesus, and what did that resentment cause? It caused the reaction where, because of Jesus' generosity, it caused the reaction where he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You see, your resentment will cause a refusal, which brings a reaction, and it puts you in a dangerous place. If we go a little bit deeper, we'll see the root of this toxic mindset. Verse 29, but he replied, all of these years, this is the older son, he replied, all of these years, and it's showing you his value set, showing you these markers of what's important to him. All of these years I've slaved for you, number one, that's important to him. And never once refused to do anything you told me to do. Number two, I'm slaving for you and I'm doing. I'm slaving for you and I'm doing. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Here's the comparison. Verse 30. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering all his money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Do you see where he goes? I mean, he's character assassination. He didn't just squander the money. He squandered the money on prostitutes. He's saying this guy's debased, he's less than, he's not at the same level as us, he's just tearing him down. You see, here's your old friend of comparison that continues to pop up. When you look at the root of resentment, often you find it in coming from this place of comparing yourself to someone else. Point number two, you might have an orphan heart if you keep score. Are you keeping score? Now listen, I'm a scorekeeper. I love to keep score. I, I've just been to watch my son's water polo games in the last two weeks, and the game I went and watched, and Leanne was with me, and his team was winning, and whenever his team's winning, I want to know the score. I'm not so interested otherwise, but when my son's team's winning, I want to know what's happening, and, and there was no one manning the scoreboard, and it was irritating me after every goal. It was like a little chafe on, on my, my heart. Um, but then anyway, after we, they won the game, and um, a bit later in the week, he played two more games. I said, Luke, what was the score? Oh, no, we, we won by so much, we didn't keep score. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's when you want to keep score. You need to know how much you win by, but no, nope, that's the way they do it. And I love that I got to engage with a seedling sports day um, this year. And you know, every kid gets a medal. And, you know, you hear people speaking about this phrase, we're not keeping score today because we want everyone to feel like winners. But how can I raise my son to be a champion if he doesn't know when he's losing? I need him to know that. But I did appreciate that I never came anywhere near winning the race and I got a medal. So I'm a medal holder from the seedlings race. But, you know, sometimes you want to know if you're losing or winning. And I think we should keep score in sports. 
I think it's good to do that. But there's a danger when we try to keep a score in our spiritual lives. When we try to keep score in our spiritual lives. Especially when we're not just competing against ourselves, but others. We start to assess my spirituality based on whether you're failing or succeeding. Because if you're going forward in your relationship with God, well, now I'm going to strive harder. You can't get ahead of me. But if, but if I'm ahead of you, then I can just, I can gloat. There's a danger. Verse 29. The son said, Father, listen, how many years have I worked like a slave for you, performing every duty you asked as a faithful son? And I've never once, here it is, keeping score, I've never once disobeyed you. So he's asking the father this question, how many years have I slaved for you? And I want to say it's a loaded question because the father hasn't been keeping score. But let me tell you, the son has been keeping score. And the father gets to the place where he's about to answer and the son knows the answer to the question. The father's, he doesn't say it in this passage, but you can imagine him saying, you know, I, I love you both. You're both my sons. I don't know how, how much you, you've done this or how long it's been. And the, the older son's like, it's been eight years, six months, five weeks, three days, 12 hours, 39 seconds. I mean, he's, he's diligent in keeping a score. And when we get into this place of keeping a score, we are finding ourselves disconnected from the father because the father doesn't have a scoreboard. And so he's got no way to relate to what we're saying. Disconnects us from his heart. He just wants to know, you my boys. And I love you both. I'm cheering you on. I'm here for you. Yes, you make mistakes. Yes, you fall down. But let's get up. Let's celebrate. Let's enjoy home and moments and create memories together. Let's do this. But the older son, the whole time that the younger son's away, he's thinking, I didn't do that and you did. But you did this and I didn't. And so he's keeping score and he's thinking, you know, I'm better than you. We need to be careful that as believers and as Christians, we don't get adept, that we don't become too diligent, that we don't create, we become creative in our accounting of keeping score. Because we'll develop a skill set that doesn't advance the kingdom. Watch what, Luke's, uh, watch what Martha said in Luke 10 verse 40. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. You see, Martha was keeping score. She was expressing that religious, orphan-hearted mindset. And Mary was just wanting to sit at the feet of Jesus. She was just wanting to enjoy the presence of her father. That's the difference between sonship and slavery. I don't know about your school experience, but I, I enjoyed it when in certain classes that they would grade according to the curve. You know the bell curve? It's when you don't have to try and get the answer right. You just got to get more answers right than your friend. Because if you do better than them, the way they grade it up, you, you elevate it up. But if you're not doing so well, you're falling down. It brings a little bit of competitive nature to, uh, to your education and to your schooling. But I'm grateful that as Christians, we don't have a curve system. Some of us want that and some of us hope for that because we think, you know, if I can just do better than my neighbor, then I'm going to be higher up. And the religious spirit will cause you to secretly hope that other people fail so that you can do better. So you want them to be torn down and fail so that you can be elevated. That's kind of what that... that uh, curve, grading according to the curve does, but Jesus doesn't keep score. And I want to say this to you, and we've got it as a statement. We grade righteousness on a curve. 
how you're doing in comparison to me and me to you. We grade righteousness on a curve, but Jesus grades righteousness on a cross. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. Whether you've got the youngest son and the oldest son standing before the chasm of the Great Canyon, it doesn't matter if the religious son has done no trailing and he's been wanton and he can't even clear half a foot and is jumping across the canyon. And that the oldest son is diligent, he's worked hard, he's trained his muscles, he's got capacity and maybe he can jump 10 meters. You know what? Both of them are getting nowhere. They're both going down. They're going to be equal at the bottom of that chasm. Jesus grades righteousness on a cross and awards it to us as a gift. It says, no, my sin is greater than yours or yours is greater than me. It's his righteousness. And if we're not careful, religiosity will position us on the slippery slope of comparison where we make ourselves be- feel better by how badly others are doing. And when we behave like that, we become a dangerous house rather than a loving home where people can return and find safety and grace in the expression of the Father's heart. Luke 15, verse 25 to 26. Now the older son was out working in the field, and when his brother returned, and as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing, and he called over to one of the servants, and he asked, what is going on? Number three, you might have an orphan heart if you like to be in control. You might have an off had some people coming in for prayer after the first. I'll put my disclaimer in afterwards. But I don't know if you've done Enneagram. It's this kind of personality assessment. It's getting quite popular. I did it a while back, and I can't remember all of mine. But just looking at these, you can do a bit of a personality profile on this older son. And if you look at it, and you might know it, he's, he's probably an eight. And an eight is this. It's, it means you're a bit of a controller. You know, you like all your ducks in a row. You like to be in that position of control. Maybe he's also a little bit of a one, you know, he's a perfectionist. Ladies, you might be this if you know that your husband uh, clears the dishwasher, puts the dishes away, and you've got to follow him and and, uh, rectify everything he's done. A little bit of a perfectionist. And then maybe he's number three. He's a bit of an achiever, you know, um, he wants to tick off the boxes. And so picture this. I mean, he's been working in the field all day long. And he comes back to the house. I mean, he's a controller. He's a perfectionist. He knows he wants everything in order. He's an achiever. And uh, as he's walking home, he's realizing, he can see when one blade of grass is out or when one tool is missing or misplaced. And he notices the pasture that he loves to walk by and something's missing. The fattening calf is not in the pasture and it's not fattening at that particular moment. And this disturbs him. And he says, what is going on here? There's There's a jolt in his heart. And he, and this thing of control kicks up. Now, I do want to qualify this and put the disclaimer that if you are an eight or three or one, I'm in no way knocking your personality um, or, the, or your assessment. Every attribute that we have, when we allow it to be redeemed and at work in our life, glorifies God. Everyone. So it's a, those are great attributes. It's used the right way, but used the wrong way. The problem is if we take our self-controlling ways into our relationship with God, then it becomes dangerous territory. If I take my self-controlling ways into my relationship with God, because then I can slip back into this mode of comparing myself to other Christians, and then I become judge, jury, and executioner of them, because I'm not only trying to control what God is doing in my life, but I'm trying to control what God is doing in their lives. And so that's the danger of control. It gets rampant. 
And here's the thing. Spiritual orphans see Christianity as a contract. But sons and daughters see Christianity as a covenant. You see, a contract you just keep with a piece of paper and rules and regulations. But a covenant has to be between two people. It's relational. And so when I see it as a contract, uh, this is what causes many people to leave the faith or leave church because they just think, you know, there's this list of a thousand things to do and it's exhaustive and it's wearisome and it's tiring and I don't have the energy for it. I don't have the capacity for it. I'm not allowed to drink wine and I'm not allowed to get a tattoo and I'm not allowed to wear makeup and I can't go to the dance and I can't go to the cinema. True story, John and Barbara. Don't know how many years in the 55 years ago that they, that Barbara went to watch a movie at the cinema and she was terrified because the thought in the church that day was that if you're there and the whole building collapses, you go straight to hell for watching a movie. So, so it could be a little bit tiring. It could be a bit tiring, but Christianity is a covenant. It's a relationship. And I don't do what I do because I'm scared I'm going to get struck down by lightning. I do what I do because I've encountered the Father. I love who He is. I want to live life with Him and live from Him. I want to represent Him. I want my life to represent that which the Father presented to me in His goodness and His kindness and His grace and His love and His compassion and His mercy and His heart to celebrate me and to pick me up and not just to send me off but to walk with me while He invites me home. I want to to live that out. That's the difference between religion and relationship. John Markoma has a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. and saying how busyness just creeps up in our lives and we don't have any boundaries and we just start to pour out in all different di- directions rather than becoming a, a deep well. And one of the things he says, uh, he uses this picture of trellises. And he says a trellis is something that you put next to a vine so that they can guard the vine to grow and be fruitful. That's what a trellis does. But a lot of us approach Christianity thinking it's a trellis and thinking, you know, I need this trellis in my life to straighten me up. It's my only option. You know, I've got to go up this trellis. And he says in this book, he says, no, no. The point of the trellis, it's not to make the vine stand up. It's to produce fine wine. It's to produce fine wine. And if you've got your eyes looking at the wrong outcome, you'll miss the beauty and the fruitfulness of what God is wanting to work and to do and to release in our lives. Point number four, you might have an orphan heart if God is the man upstairs, if you view him as just this man upstairs. Verse 25, now the oldest son was out working in the field when his brother returned. Watch this distinction. And as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. He called over to one of the servants and asked, what's going on? And the servant replied, hear this, it's your younger brother, he's returned home. You see, he was going to a house, but his brother was returning to a home. And there's a difference between a house and a home. You know, if I go to your home, it's just a house to me. But if you come to my house, it's not just a house. You're coming to my home. It's where I live life and where I function from. And this word in the Greek is oikia, and it means inhabitants, property, wealth, goods. You see, the older brother should have realized that he had a home, but he was rather seeing it as an inhabitant, a property, as a wealth, something to be worked. He was missing the beauty of home. And if you're operating in an orphan heart, then you know, I've got to make my house look good so that I can impress other people. 
with how the house looks. I've got to make it look good to impress. Rather than I've got to discover what home is so I can have peace and joy and life and live from this place. And so there's this, this distinction that happens. The prodigal son runs away from a house, but he returns to a home. Verse 17, he says this. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home. In verse 20, it says, he returned home to his father. You see, home is where the father is. Home is where the heart is. And we discover our home when we encounter the father heart of God. That's the invitation and the beauty of what we have in Christ as he came to show the way to the father. And you know what's more important than who you are? It's getting God's view of who you are, how God views who you are. And we can see this because if we think he's just a far-off cosmic being who just wants to have this checklist and to make sure that we're doing right so that he can shine down on us, then we miss the beauty of how he sees us. We miss the invitation to live as sons and daughters with true intimacy that have received identity from our proximity with him. Martha had this mindset, Luke 10, 41 to 42. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha was performing to get a house in order, but Mary was posturing herself to live life in a home. Martha was performing to get the house in order. Mary, Mary was posturing herself as a daughter to live life from home, from the presence of the Father. You see, here's the thing. If we can put up that next statement, thank you, Brandon. Religion makes God the boss and you the employee. That's what religion does. But Jesus makes God the father and you the son. Jesus makes God the father and you the son or the daughter. Verse 29. He replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And this is what's going to take us into the next point. And in all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. The last point, point number five, you might have an orphan heart if you settle for a goat. You might have an orphan heart if you settle for a goat. Now remember, we're talking about the fattened calf. And it's been mentioned a couple times in this passage. And one of the reasons that the son is so resentful, because you can be resentful towards someone over an object. You can be resentful to someone, over, uh, to someone over an inheritance or a car or a house or a, I don't know what it might be in your situation. And one of the reasons that the son was so resentful is because the text doesn't say there were met, many cat, uh, fattened calves. There was one fattened calf, singular. And this older brother's had this, his eye on the calf. I mean, he's been working. He's had his eye on it. He's been working. He's been slaving in the fields for years, um, working with the servants, working as if he had a master to please him because he's got his eye on this fattened calf. And he's thinking, you know, maybe this is going to be mine. I can imagine if I can get it to butcher boys and they can just get a slice of it. It's going to be prime, prime ribeye. And I'm going to enjoy every bite. You don't need sauce. It's just that good, medium rare, medium rare say that because my like, my, Leanne likes it well done, and we have a lot of debates over this. But medium rare. I told you I identify with the older son a bit, so I know that he'd prefer that. And, and so he's working, he's slaving, he's performing, he's got this in mind. But here's the resentfulness that comes. It's because the fattened calf gets slaughtered, and it's slaughtered for the wasteful, wantful, runaway son. And everything rises up within him, and he thinks, how can this be? This is not fair. And here's the challenge. And this is what I want to bring to you. Don't let this happen. 
He settled for a goat when prime rib was on the menu. His resentment caused them to settle for a goat when prime rib was on the menu. He was too busy licking his wounds and resentment to respond when the father said, come, we've got the fattened calf. It is ready. You don't even have to worry about preparing it. Just get dressed up. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to be a party. It's going to be a night to remember. Come and enjoy. But he was so full of resentment that he refused to go in. Do you know that your brothers and sisters in Christ might be receiving a blessing that the Father wants you to partake in, but you getting so frustrated that someone else got the blessing that you miss out because you refuse to be a part of what God's doing in their life because you've got resentment. You've built up a wall, and so you're disengaging. And God is blessing them so that you can be a partake in it, enjoy the goodness of what God's doing. But your resentment causes you to miss out. It's because he's so focused on his own pain that he settles for less. He settled for slavery rather than realizing that he was really a son. Verse 31. His father said, my son, in the Passion Translation, his father said, my son, you are always with me by my side and everything I have is yours to enjoy. I mean, those verses are loaded. It's speaking about identity, my son. You are always with me, intimacy. Everything I have is yours to enjoy, inheritance. He's saying this is all here, identity, intimacy, inheritance. But the son is so caught up in resentment, and this wall is so high, there's this reaction in him that he's refusing, that he's not partaking in the goodness of God that was on offer for him. Resentment will hold you back. And what we realize is even the deception he was in, because when we jump to the beginning of the story in verse 12, it says this, right at the start, before the prodigal son went off, it says, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons, plural. The father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. If you read the commentaries, it's saying this guy already has his inheritance. So he's mad and he's frothing and he's saying, no, I'm gonna eat a goat, even though there's prime rib, I refuse to engage, but he's already got his inheritance. And he's saying this isn't fair, but here's the reality. Read Deuteronomy and the culture of the day. He hasn't even got an equal inheritance. He's got double what the younger son's got. Mom, that's Old Testament. (laughs) I saw your eyes twinkle for a moment there. This is the danger of resentment. We can become so obsessed with what's happening to other people that you forget the goodness of God in your life. We need to get our perspective back. I want to say the most upsetting thing about this story is the way that it ends, because it doesn't end. I mean, that is the end. We've read the verses. It's just saying, my son, you're always with me. I'm always with you. I want you to enjoy this. We've got to have this celebration. And then it goes no further. It's like when the the screen goes blank and you're like, "Those, those credits better not start rolling. We've got unfinished business. Leanne and I watched a series where that happened the other night, and I've continued to moan at her about the ending of it for a while now, but you feel, no, no, I want to know what happened. Was the party good? Did the older son kick, bite, scratch, or do something worse to the younger son? What happened? Did they make make up? I mean, did these people get married and have kids? What is going on? How does this unfold? And Jesus leaves it unintended on purpose as he's telling the story with religious people listening, with rebellious people listening. He leaves it unintended on purpose Because he's saying, you get to end, to live, and to write out your own story. It's open to you right now. 
And some days you might feel that you're the prodigal son who's run off and wanted and wasted and gone away and squandered. And you need to come to that place where you know, I'm going to write my own story. I'm going to return and I'm going to run back. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to the Father. Maybe that's the story you need to write. Maybe other days you're the other son and there's resentment in your heart. And there's a wall up and I'm refusing and I deserve that and they got it. And we caught up in that place and we think, you know, but I, I know God and if I can just work out how he operates, then I can control how he's going to work and then everything will be perfect. But if one thing goes wrong, then my whole world freaks out. I'm like, does God even exist? And God is just wanting to say to you, everything I have is yours. You are my son. I want you to be with me. And I want to enjoy every moment. We have that invitation to respond to it. How the story ends determines, is determined by you. So I want to finish, and I'm going to ask Ricky if you can just come up and just play on the keyboard. I want to pray, and I'm going to ask you to close your eyes at this moment because I want this to be personal for you. No hands are going to go up. We're not going to ask for a response, but I just want to minister this through a moment. I want to pick up on this thread of resentment. I want to say, are you, is there resentment in your life? Are you harboring resentment? Maybe you don't know, and this is a way that you can discover it. If there's an area of your life where a certain name is brought up, or a certain situation is brought up, or a certain company is brought up, that something bubbles up in you, and what comes up in you and out of you is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. When you hear that thing, it's not joy, it's not peace, it's not love that's bu bubbling up. Something else is bubbling up. A little bit less savory. I want to suggest that that could be resentment. So how do you get rid of resentment? I've said we don't want to harbor resentment. And we looked at that picture as a harbor being, it's when you take something in and you give it shelter and you hide it away from the outside. The way you deal with resent, resentment is you, you bring it out the harbor. You say, Holy Spirit, I want you to come. Like that picture of that tugboat that guards ships out. I want you to guard me and my heart out of this hidden, separated place that I've placed myself. I want to encourage you to talk to someone, pray with someone, share with someone. Bring it into the light so that what's been happening in the darkness gets displaced. And the only way to overcome resentment is to replace it with the love of the Father. We saw that earlier in Corinthians. As love increases, resentment has to go. They cannot coexist in the same place. And if you know that you are loved as a son and a daughter, then I want to encourage you with this. If you've got resentment in your heart towards someone else, you need to realize that they are also a loved son and a daughter. And so I want you to expose that for yourself, to bring it out, bring it to the forefront. And I want to encourage you, don't make excuses about it. I know there's the temptation to say that they should have and they could have and they didn't, and you know what? You're probably right. But I want you to bring that resentment to the forefront, expose it, and acknowledge in your spirit that it's not from God. And by doing this, you're pulling it out of the harbor, and you're realizing, I don't need to hold on this thing to this thing because it's beyond the scope of my authority, and I am not judge, juror, and executioner. But Father, I'm going to trust you to be who you are. So I'm handing this over to you. I'm going to approach you as a son and a daughter. And even where I've been rejected, maybe by the world or rejected by a boss or rejected by a spouse, rejected by a friend or rejected by a sibling, rejected even by myself, 
Today I bring it out because I'm running to your arms of acceptance. To hear your whisper over me that I'm a beloved son and a beloved daughter and I get to live from home in the Father's love. Father, I just pray that even as we pray that you just work that in our hearts. I pray that you come and you break us out of and into freedom with the instantaneous moving of your spirit. But I also pray that you work fortitude and courage in our hearts to walk free of that which you want us to walk free of. We just thank you that we can acknowledge your grace. We can know that uh, we are covered by your blood and that, Lord, that, um, that we can just rest in the victory you've won on our behalf. And so we just thank you that you come and just bring release and freedom to every person here that has prayed that. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and together we say amen. So be it.